Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Sunday night edition of the pod, a little less drama tonight, 122-103, the final Golden State behind an NBA Finals record nine three-pointers by Stephen Curdy. He was nine out of 17 in total, had eight assists, 33 points. Leading the Warriors, LeBron James, 29 points on 10 of 20 from the field and 13 assists were not enough. Kevin Durant, also an excellent game, 26 points, 10 of 14 from the field for him with seven assists and Draymond Green chipped in with excellent defense and seven assists of his own. Where would you like to start on this one? I think the place for me to start is that Cleveland's defense kind of turned back into a pumpkin, especially at the beginning of this game. I mean, that part's going to get kind of lost in the shuffle after Curry's just massive fourth quarter when he had five threes just in the fourth alone. But the Warriors were nine for nine in the restricted area during just the first quarter. They were getting and and I know some people, especially early in the game, were getting agitated because of the foul slash free throw discrepancy. But it was another reminder of something that we saw early in this season, which is that Cleveland sometimes has a low foul rate because they're so far away from the play <laughs> that they can't commit a foul. And I thought early on that really helped give the Warriors life. They did have a change in the starting lineup. JaVale McGee was in there. But the Warriors, generally speaking, early on didn't have to work too hard for their baskets. And Cleveland other than the third quarter, I thought did have to work harder than they did in game one, and that helped create some of this disparity. Yeah, to me, this game was all about the Warriors' defense, despite the heroics by Curry. And I do think that Cleveland needs to change up their strategy a little bit defensively. We'll get to that because they gave up a 126 offensive rating in the first game and a 131 offensive rating in this game. Quick aside, by the way, a lot of people were saying, well, you know, Cleveland went to overtime against the Warriors, but the Warriors still did all this stuff. They shot like this great percentage. You know, they should have hope for the next game. Well, remember that if you're going to cite all those stats for the Warriors for the full game, you got to treat it like it's a 10 point win for the Warriors because they scored 17 points in five minutes in overtime, right? So if you're going to look at that, at it that way, you got to look at what the stats were for the Warriors through just regulation of game one. But Cleveland hasn't come close to stopping Golden State. Golden State really has been able to get very good shots. And when they aren't getting very good shots, they're still getting contested shots, but by guys who really are not able to make the shooter uncomfortable. And we've seen that with Kevin Love and Steph Gray. I think Love has done about as good as could be expected on Curry, but the problem is the expectation for that is not very high. Um, I think Cleveland has also found ways to defend when the Warriors go to some of their lineups with, you know, a Kavon Looney or Sean Livingston both together on the floor. And then you can not guard Draymond and you, you've got only one of KD or Steph on the floor. Clay is out of the game. Nick Young uh, was 0 for 5 in this one today. But and mostly what they've been doing is running Curry off the line as best they can and then not guarding guys. You know, we saw in the third quarter in particular, Curry wasn't able to finish around the room because there was a lot of traffic there. 
But when they've got Clay, KD, and Curry all on the floor, Cleveland just does not have a chance to stop these guys with the personnel that they're playing and the strategy that they're playing. But I do think that you know there may be no real solution I mean, you can kill the coaching all you want but it's not a great team personnel wise defensively and this is one of the greatest offenses of all time they're going up against. and Lou did make a couple adjustments in terms of the rotation Jordan Clarkson played in the first half he was awful he did not play in the competitive portion of the second half and I thought they defended well what they did in those minutes was Cleveland went without a traditional point guard they had J.R. Smith and they were switching a lot so it didn't really make that much of a difference and For the second game in a row, I thought that, you know, Hill being in foul trouble affected them a little bit. He has been, to me, their third best player in this series, but he still played 34. So this one, it was not as much of a limitation in terms of minutes played. It was more just, it just affected the team. I mean, at one point, the Cavs only had eight fouls as a team, and George Hill had four of those eight. Yeah, Hill had a couple of bad ones. The one, the and one they gave JaVale McGee on a no chance guy a foot taller than him going up for a dunk foul wasn't fantastic. What did you see differently from Golden State on defense in this one? How was it that they made the Cavaliers and LeBron more uncomfortable? Well, it's funny because it didn't really start on the defensive glass, which was one thing I thought. I didn't expect them to be good because they just don't really have particularly strong personnel for it and the switching system is going to create opportunities for guys like Tristan and Kevin Love to get in there but they were picking up LeBron a little bit earlier on the floor they were changing out the guys like Durant was sometimes just Draymond would go out and get LeBron for a possession or two and I think that was helping Durant stay energized a little bit better and also Durant wasn't taking as much of the offensive burden and I thought the Warriors did a better job fighting to get around switches like some of those low resistance ones where like Cleveland would have a guard set a screen where they didn't really make any contact and so instead of just going oh well we could let's just switch that they would have Durant like float a little bit under and that is what you should do against a guy who can make jump shots I mean obviously LeBron can that's been so big in why he's still as good as he is right now but he ended two for four from three and you know had had some mid-rangers as well but he's so much more dangerous getting to the basket so I thought those were some of the big elements that they did better and they I I think they also communicated they executed other than the third quarter when I thought in the third quarter they messed up a lot of stuff and I'll talk about what why I think that happened but I thought overall they kind of understood that you need to provide more resistance yes that is sort of the the point of defense I I suppose Uh, I think a few things you know the big strategic change was they were endeavoring to not get Steph Curry onto LeBron James and at least not until it was very late in the shot clock in a lot of instances and but the big thing you mentioned Kevin Durant when he was on LeBron he did a much better job you know we we saw that there are all kinds of times in game one where LeBron just got a walk to the rim you know just when like guys were out of position or like KD wouldn't force him to use the screen or he'd just like kind of get wrong footed and LeBron would go right down the lane you know, LeBron probably got six or seven relatively uncontested straight line drives in game one and those were largely not available to him in this game so just simply staying solid and forcing him to actually beat someone uh, who was in position was step one I I thought I, I it was an interesting play 
to try to get Draymond onto LeBron more. And I think Draymond guarding LeBron one-on-one, you know, LeBron, I don't want to say that he can't do something, but certainly I think trying to score one-on-one on on Draymond, if you had to pick someone who's like, all right, this is the guy you want to defend LeBron James one-on-one and there's not going to be a screen or anything, that's close to the best guy that you want in the league. But I, I thought that had an interesting counter then as the Cavs would bring a shooter up to screen Draymond, get the switch, and now Draymond is on one of your good shooters and so he can't be as helpful as a help defender. Yeah, it paralleled something the Warriors did in the last series with Clint Capella. They were using shooters to set screens for Capella so then he couldn't get in there for rebounds and contested shots at the rim. Yeah, and in this third quarter, which was Cleveland's most successful quarter, though they ended up only winning that quarter by three because they still couldn't stop anybody. I mean, Cleveland's offense, you know, I said that the Warriors' defense was better. It was in the first two quarters, particularly in the second quarter. Uh, But they did give up 34 points in the third, but got 31 themselves. It was really the concerted effort LeBron get Curry into the pick and roll pretty much every time in the third quarter when they really went to what they wanted to do you know LeBron wasn't quite as engaged in every single play in the first half even though he you know they had 28 points in the first quarter but I thought that overall Golden State really stopped them pretty well in the first half only gave up 10 three-point attempts Cavs were three out of 10 as well and that's a big part of why the Cavs started looking better in the third was they were able to get some threes Golden State had a few breakdowns where they just didn't know who they had a couple of times and gave up threes as a result of that but overall you know you would point to maybe five errors instead of 15 or 20 that the Warriors had just in terms of like mental mistakes defense I have gotten used to calling JaVale McGee in my report card stuff for the athletic calling him the trade-off because really that's what it that's what the balancing act for him is he's a capable offensive player bends the opposing defense because he's a good role man and a good finisher at the rim but then defensively he's a, bi- a big challenge area and I thought a, a significant portion of that third quarter the you know LeBron being more aggressive certainly helped but McGee was having adventures guarding Kevin Love like you would just lose him because Love was doing a great job of moving around the floor and just making life hard on somebody who's not used to guarding somebody like him and a stat that I thought was you know it's a little bit of imbalance in terms of numbers just who was playing with who but the Warriors had a 125.5 defensive rating when McGee was on the floor and that was about 17 minutes in this game 95-3 when he was on the bench and LeBron played 44 minutes so it wasn't like oh you know it all squared up with LeBron because basically everything squared up with LeBron but it created some of those teams. You could say that it's worth it because the Warriors played with more energy and more assertiveness offensively. That is the challenge with McGee, though, every time out. Yeah, and in the first quarter, he was a little bit better, but they did start giving up threes. They put him in pick and roll more as well. Tristan Thompson went so far as to, when he was asked about McGee's contributions, to say, well, we got him taken off the floor, although that's he comes out anyway uh, and, and doesn't come back. Oh, I guess actually he did come back in in the uh, second quarter in this one. Kevin Love really struggled in the first half shooting the ball and then I was able to get going to some degree shooting in the second and I thought really Tristan Thompson might have been the Cavs second best player tonight Thompson five of eight had 11 points three offensive rebounds but his usual dosage of loose ball fouls and he was key in the Cavs initial run they cut it to four 
at one point in the third uh he was he got a couple offensive rebounds he got a dunk from lebron he, he had a tip in he had a nice short roll pass to the weak side that became a love corner three that he nailed it was uh a good performance for him he was only negative one in 23 minutes when you know that was about as good as it got for the Cavs regulars in terms of plus minus in this game so i would have liked to have seen more uh, lou never really went back to him uh, he, he wanted to also get some minutes for love at center but i it does seem like the hey let's outscore him strategy and that failed last year when they had Kyrie Irving and I don't know that it's going to work much better this year maybe you can get away and this is the other thing I think they do uh line up loves minutes to be when Curry is not on the floor as much as possible because that is the one matchup that love really you know they're hunting love they're switching everything that's the one matchup that Cleveland just uh, has not been able to deal with in this series and Curry has confidence and an arsenal of moves to use against love I think that some of the Durant struggles in that circumstance, especially in game one. I think Durant didn't score in three ISOs on Kevin Love. You know, that's just what happens when you only have three occasions. But it is harder for him to create that advantage, and the Warriors didn't rely as much on Durant offensively. So I agree with you there. I think that is is something they could do. But one of the other storylines of this game that we haven't talked about yet, and the fact that we haven't talked about it yet is a testament to how crazy this was. When Klay Thompson got hurt in the first quarter of game one, I told you, I thought, I think I might have said this out loud, that I thought he was out for the series. Like that was, when I saw that injury, that was my first thought. It looked really bad. We had a good angle on it. It looked awful. He missed some time in that first quarter, came back, played basically the rest of that game. Then it has apparently got worse over the last couple days, but then he was able to play, played 34 minutes and sure, 20 points, 8 of 13 from the field is a very good night. But in many ways, the most important thing beyond executing that Clay Thompson did was he allowed the, the Warriors bench to stay in more manageable roles. Yeah, Thompson's, you would think that playing on a high ankle sprain like that, that the biggest thing that would be affected was his ability to get to the basket is two-point shooting. But he actually was five of five on two-pointers. He didn't miss a, a single one uh, on his way to that 8 of 13 performance. And obviously, of all the guys in the league, you'd say that Clay can be the most useful when he's not totally right physically, just because you're never going to leave him. And his his shot is just so solid mechanically that you know even if he has a little bit of an issue with his legs, you know I think he's still able to make it, which he did with that three of eight from downtown. Well, I was cracking up. I watched his. He did a very late warm up later than almost anybody because it looks like he might not even have one at all. He'd already actually been cleared to play in the game. And I was cracking up because he was basically walking from spot to spot and then just drilling every jump shot. So it was, it was kind of like looking 10 years into his future where it's like, okay, if all he could do is just get to the spot and shoot, he's still unbelievable at that specific thing. But I thought defensively he did a much better job than I anticipated considering the discomfort that he had to be in. Yeah, and he said when he was asked by Rachel Nichols after the game that he did not take a shot. I don't know that getting a shot in your ankle is a great idea anyway. Like, I think that could mess up your proprioception, but uh, the doctor's an athletic. The line after that was unbelievable, though, about how he he said that he, he didn't, like, appreciate how important your ankles are when you're playing, and he was sitting next to Stephen Curry when he said it, and Steph just starts cracking up and says, you should have asked me. Because I'd be like, <laughs> like, he plays with the guy who might have the most famous ankle troubles in North American sports history. And it's just like, Clay's like, yeah, I never really thought about how important that is. Yeah, I'd put him number two behind Grant Hill, actually. But yeah, it's uh, 
it's up there for sure so let's do a quick read here and then we can talk a, a little bit more about where cleveland goes from here a little bit more about curry's record setting night as well it's actually pretty early it's nice here with this five o'clock game we're recording at 11 o'clock right now it's early by our post-game standards at least but once i decide to retire after the pod is up and all the i's and t's are are dotted and crossed when you go to sleep on my awesome helix sleep mattress they develop a mattress that you can customize to your specific height weight and sleep preferences many of their competitors are one size fits all back before i knew about helix sleep i actually tried one of those competitors and both my now fiance and i and i thought it was terrible it, we both developed some lower back pain we ended up having to just have it returned and so then she found helix sleep this is way back in the fall of 2015 we ordered it after filling out that profile and it's been awesome ever since we actually got another one now as well for our guest room we have a couple of california kings it's the best mattress that i have slept on the one that we've had for three years is good as new still and i knew that their competitors advertised on podcasts and so after i first got one i this is in the nascent days of dunk tom i actually dm'd their company twitter account and said hey i i have this podcast i have your product i love it i would love to advertise for you guys and so i think i was actually the first podcast that they advertise on and they've had a lot of success advertising on this show because i think uh, our listeners have tried the product and loved it as well and you have to take my word for it though because you get 100 nights to try it out and then they also have these new pillows which i sleep on now as well the pillows are fully adjustable so whether you're a back sleeper as i am side sleeper you can adjust them so you get the perfect height with your head when you get started with them and now they have a even better deal 125 dollars toward your mattress order depending on exactly what you order but you can get up to 125 dollars at the link helixsleep.com slash cap space easy remember cap space about to talk about it on our off-season preview here that's helixsleep.com slash cap space to get up to 125 dollars toward your mattress order once again helixsleep.com slash cap space is that url to let them know that you came from us so i thought it was very interesting that curry nine out of 17 from three you'd think it was just this absolute monster efficient game from him but he was only two out of nine on twos and i thought cleveland did a pretty good job contesting him around the rim there certainly were a few of those that he would like to have back and the problem is though when your strategy is resulting in stephen curry getting 17 three-point attempts and you know part of it isn't strategy part of it's bad execution by them right i mean how many threes did he get sprinting to the corner after he gave the ball up I mean, that's becoming like his new signature shot now you know you think you should probably be ready for that you know especially if you're a kevin love knowing that you're going to get switched onto him 97 times a game and that that's the strategy but i mean you're just your chances of holding the warriors to even like a decent offensive night are very low if you're going to give up a combined 25 three-point attempts to Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and especially when your strategy of switching love onto him and uh you know also their bad transition defense as well is part of it is uh it's just not going to work giving credit to the fact that some of these Curry threes were completely they were I mean the most ridiculous was that late heave over Kevin Love which effectively ended the game I mean Curry basically they it was I think it was off an inbound there was a like a, it was a short shot clock and he just kind of lost lost his thread he actually i think he said he was trying to go for a layup but somebody got in the way and then he just kept on trailing back and just kind of chucked it with about a second left on the shot clock and it it fell in i think that put the warriors up 13 or 16 and there's nothing really you can do about that but there were other ones of course yeah the the i, I think slater's calling it the pass and dash that he's been doing that is 
effective against defenses that are switching or that are just the sometimes they take a beat off when he gets rid of the ball. It's like, oh, great. Now it's not as not a stressful deal with. But Curry, I still think he's more dangerous in this current iteration of him. He's more dangerous off ball than on ball just because he's so smart about picking his spots. And the Warriors have other guys who can feed him. You know, I'd be on most teams. That wouldn't be true because they don't have another option. But they, the Warriors do. And so I thought he did a nice job. After the early part where he a couple of times he kind of tried to sh- to get himself hot again, where like he had that one shot, which was from basically, God, I was at like 30 something feet in transition when they could have gotten something better. But another part of his night that gets lost in the shuffle because it happened in the early part, he had five assists in the first quarter. He ended with, I think, eight. And a lot of that was just because he was drawing so much attention in the way they were defending it. And of those five assists off the top of my head, four of them were clean shots in the restricted area. Yeah, McGee had had a number of dunks early. I thought that Kevin Durant really came out and played a much more physical, engaged game, a a tougher game. And on both ends of the floor, I thought that in particular, his his first bucket of the game was just going all the way to the rim for a layup. And we didn't really see much of that from him other than that one drive that ended up being a charge uh, and then was reversed to a block. And we just saw him decide that he was going to be physical enough you know he's not going to go through guys for power moves necessarily but that he was just going to get to his spot and not get bumped off and it's such a difference for him when he's taking a 17 footer a 14 footer versus taking a 19 footer you know that's really the difference in accuracy there i think it is quite meaningful for him and you know curry will get the fireworks but he was the least efficient of the big three on offense here and KD, 26 points on 16 shots. That's more of basically what he's been able to do against 16 shooting possessions, I should say. That's more of what he's been able to do historically as a warrior against Cleveland. And then he also had seven assists, which he was criticized in the Rockets series for not being able to create for others. A lot of those assists just kind of happen organically for this Warriors team when they run. And Well, one of those was maybe the most surprising play of this entire game. Oh, the David West corner three? Yeah, David West, I think, hadn't made a three since November. And Durant was, it was late in the third quarter, just basically was driving down and found him in the corner and kind of sitting there going, wait, who is that in the corner? And it was David West. And the crowd absolutely loved that. They, the, the kind of, the Oracle crowd beyond relishing. I mean, we, we have to mention that the, the brutal taunting of J.R. Smith in the early portion of this game, including MVP chance when he went to the free throw line early on, but Durant found West for that play. And yeah, he's, he he has these moments where he's really good at finding guys and when the when the mentality's right and i think they've the warriors have kind of gotten into the point where it's like well when he has it that's great and when he doesn't they can they can deal with it and it was interesting to see that slide in when his scoring was i mean at least only taking 14 shots i mean he was still brutally efficient as you mentioned but he can contribute in these different ways and i thought you know the more important thing though i mean his defense was huge Yeah, he still hasn't given much rim protection, but he did have nine defensive rebounds. He was making a big effort, especially in the fourth quarter, to get onto the defensive glass. We mentioned that his defense on LeBron was better, but him playing as the clear number two makes more sense in this series, especially if he's not going to be guarded that much by LeBron. And also just because him going... Because now they're switching everything, you know, you really, there's no reason to ever go at LeBron, even if it is to tire him out. There's just such juicier matchups elsewhere. But KD has to do things in terms of defending LeBron, in terms of protecting the rim, rebounding, 
that Curry doesn't. So it makes more sense, and especially now if they're not going to switch Curry onto LeBron as much, it makes more sense for KD to have a secondary offensive role concentrate on getting the most efficient shots let Steph Curry and Steph Curry took 26 shots and KD took 14 I don't know that needs to be quite that ratio but and Curry also I think is more effective attacking Kevin Love one-on-one than KD is that particular matchup there's a lot of guys that KD is better attacking one-on-one but against a big I I like Curry's chances better than KD's so I think that letting KD kind of save a little bit more of his energy to do for the floor game makes a little bit more sense he also was very effective pushing the ball in transition as well what do you got here from Cleveland's side I mean I think yeah I'll leave it to you any more impressions about their strategy or or the way their guys played in this one I'll echo something that you said earlier that they're going to need some modicum of defense in order to stick in this and so more Tristan Thompson I think would be would be useful I thought he did he did a fine job overall in this you know he he did well in the game and so he deserved more minutes than he got it's not like Tristan was in foul trouble or something where there was a reason he needed to play fewer minutes Nance had been strong in game one, provided some energy this game, but I, I just don't think he brings as much to the table. And if they're going to play love at center at moments, which I do support, then Tristan should be the primary there. You know, Jordan Clarkson, Haberstroh had the amazing stat that he did end up getting one in garbage time. But Clark, before that, Jordan Clarkson's last assist was with 6.16 left in the fourth quarter of game four of the Toronto series. And he's had a pretty consistent rotation role since then. I would either excise him or get pretty damn close to that and they have you know whether it's going with a point guard like Calderon or Chetty I think Chetty Osman who had a a brief cameo in the first half but then you know played in garbage time or even just more Jeff Green or something like that just because Clarkson isn't really bringing anything to the table and I don't know exactly how to use Kyle Korver but it does feel like I don't know it feels like maybe they should just try at brief moments like little pockets of time some of those offensive lineups, maybe you pick out like when Draymond's not on the floor or JaVale is or whatever, whatever that seam is and just be like, OK, LeBron, you get your shooters for like four minutes. Let's see what you guys can do. Yeah. And you say they need more Jeff Green and they, that's probably right. I mean, he's but his unwillingness to shoot, you know, he was 0 for 2 in this game, but he passed up a lot of looks uh, as well. You know, they had a shot clock violation when he got the ball in the corner for a three and just didn't take it and then tried to put the ball on the floor and had to take a tough contested fadeaway with the clock low. And there are a number of times when he was in the corner, which is really, you know, the only place I think he feels comfortable from three to the extent that he does. And LeBron would dime him up because they weren't guarding him and Green just wasn't really comfortable shooting and he finished it as game two for seven, only had six points, negative 11 for him. Nance had a, a lot of mistakes, negative 13 in 12 minutes. So I was that's what part of why I was surprised we didn't see more of Tristan Thompson. The offensive rebounding is an interesting one, right? It, this is another 37% offensive rebound game. I mean, that's like, you know, a 1980s style number. Um although the Cavs scored 103 points, which doesn't seem that great, this was only a 91 possession game in part because of all these offensive rebounds that they're getting. It's slowing the pace down. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're keeping the Warriors out of transition. However, you do question a little bit. It, it's very much increasing the variance, which might be a good idea for this team to go after offensive rebounds and and a lot of them too are you know one guy maybe two going to the glass so you could say that maybe that's not the reason for their poor transition defense maybe the reason is just you know they don't have great communication and great defenders and the warriors might be the best transition team in nba history but 
it slowed down a little bit in the fourth quarter once the Warriors were kind of trying to milk clock but through the meat of the game the Warriors were running on over 50 percent of Cleveland misses and for the game they had a 172.7 offensive rating off of Cleveland's misses and then usually they actually uh have blown a lot of odd man fast breaks off of steals but today they averaged uh two points per possession off of steals as well and so that that was really although the fast break points numbers in particular weren't that bad the Warriors only had 17 credited fast break points you know what we think of that statistic that they're a little bit too draconian and what counts as transition so that was uh remains a big problem for the Cavs hopefully at home Cleveland will be able to both play better transition defense and the Warriors generally don't run quite as much on the road as they do at home when they're really juiced up by the crowd something else the Warriors didn't do a ton in this game was running off of makes they did it a couple times and actually worked very well and considering generally speaking the Warriors are running a deeper rotation like they at least run more individual human beings off their bench you know it, with LeBron playing as many minutes as he is. I think there are more opportunities for that, but I think something that was striking in this game. So the Warriors, 84% of their possessions came in the half court, which is, that's a lot, but 133 offensive rating on half court possessions in the offense. It's amazing. So we talked about this after game one. What they're doing right now is not working. You have to try something else. You can't give up 125, 131 offensive rating. I don't think you can rely just simply on the fact that you're back at home. And I think they also wasted an opportunity here because with Andre Iguodala out, using a trapping scheme on Curry could have been a lot more effective when you've got Kavon Looney or Jordan Bell or even Livingston on the floor starting to sound like Iguodala could return for game three you know he started actually some physical movement at this point but probably game four you would have to think he'll be back given the path that he seems to be on at this point where they're calling him doubtful for one it's making it tough to know with the bone exactly how it's expand once he ramps up his activity level but nonetheless I thought this was the perfect opportunity to do that trapping scheme and I guess uh, Tristan Thompson had a quote about it that basically, you know, they're trying to do what Houston did. I mean, he basically, I don't know if he said they're copying their strategy necessarily because we've seen them switch against the Warriors before as well. But with Kevin Love, they just don't have the personnel to do that. Corver as well, though I thought he held up okay a couple of times. It's, it could get pretty ugly for him trying to guard Kevin Durant in particular. I still would try to do a little bit of the trapping, especially with Draymond Green shooting so poorly. He's got this shoulder injury. He's not finishing very well around the rim. Try to get into his head a little bit by not guarding it but the Warriors have so many good counters to that I'm not saying that it's going to work for sure it's probably not going to work but putting the Warriors have beaten teams that have tried to trap them pretty relentlessly but we haven't seen that strategy against you know Kavon Looney at center uh Looney actually didn't play quite as much in this one but uh, and there's other guys like Bell McGee who are not as facile at that so I I would have tried that it may not work now. It may be a worse strategy now if Iguodala can return, but he'll probably be on limited minutes anyway. So especially given certain personnel, I would go that way. Anything else you can think of besides that? I assume you're, you're in agreement with me on that one because we talked about that before. Yeah, I am in agreement with you there. I think that's in terms of tactics. Yeah, I, the 
the balance is going to be tough on terms of offensive and defensive rebounding. I think it is more about the numbers, you know, like two or fewer, but those two guys can do a lot of damage, especially if one of them is Tristan Thompson. And Love is a smart offensive rebounder. They don't really have as many of the, in my opinion, as many of the kind of like P.J. Tucker opportunistic guys who kind of go in when they have a shot. But, you know, Corver's gotten a couple, Hill's gotten a couple, those sorts of players can. Something else, you, you brought this up briefly in the last answer that I think is worth talking about is that partially with JaVale McGee starting, partially Jordan Bell outplaying him. Kevon Looney was pretty marginalized in the competitive portion of this game. He played six and a half minutes, ended up with 11 because he played in garbage time. And against Cleveland, that makes sense because you can attack them offensively. You don't want to give them an out. And Kevon Looney gives them an out. You know, maybe he can get some offensive rebounds, but he's reluctant to finish. He missed his two free throws in this game. And Bell, like, he had, he only had one assist in this game, but I thought it was a good reflection of, like, what he could be as an offensive player. So it was a play where Curry drove in, and he didn't really have a lane to finish. He had already missed some layups in the game. This was in the late third quarter. So he gives the ball to Bell, and... The Cavs, you know, get a guy over to him because you have to do that, but otherwise Bell would have had a dunk. And so he just kind of dribbles around that guy and then looks and, and has his head up, which is different, and like then most of the most of the other Warrior centers, and just finds Clay Thompson in the opposite side, kind of at the, at the break, and Thompson just drills a three. And so Cleveland, you know, if you make them defend, there will be seams there. And Bell can do that in a way that Looney cannot and probably never will. So it makes sense to use him in that role. And then Looney has actually kind of become, now that Iguodala is unavailable, he has actually become Draymond's backup. because So he and Bell were playing together in the non-Draymond minutes for the most part. Sean Livingston is also having an awesome series. He yes. Five for five, 10 points uh, today. Very impressive uh, start for him. And, and they don't really have the type of players, who, like real athletic, strong guys who can make him uncomfortable. A lot of people calling for Cal Corver to play more over J.R. Smith. J.R. 31 minutes, two of nine, one of four from three. J.R. not really a good two-point shooter at this point in his career. Corver was negative 18 in his 17 minutes. Do you agree with that? Should we see more Corver and less Smith? Not when Curry's on the floor. I think they'll just attack it too relentlessly. Unless yeah. you kind of do that idea. you We've talked about it before of having two shaky defenders on yeah. the floor can actually kind of work. Right, right. Because it doesn't the, matter who your fourth worst defender. Yeah, the idea it's, the, it's the whole like, as long as you're the sec- as long as you're the second slowest kid, you're not going to get caught by the bear. That whole idea, basically. <laughs> and so I guess one of those guys won't get caught by the bear um, as much of the time. Though I mean, there could just be so many teams. But yeah, Corver, I mean, s- such a valuable offensive player. I think it's worth giving him a try. I, I understand why Lou. I mean, beyond his experience and everything else, but given Jr.'s, you know, what happened in Game One, I could see just wanting to give him enough. But yeah, I mean, Cleveland at this point. They have won an NBA Finals down 2-0. It has happened before. But they now need to beat what is a superior team at their current health levels. And the biggest player that has been limited or unavailable is on the Warriors' side of the ledger. They have to beat them four out of five times. So I would try to change things up at least a little bit because winning the series is always the goal. Winning the series is still the goal. And... Well, I'll tell you what, though, what? like making this even slightly competitive almost starts to become a goal if you want to keep LeBron James, like not getting right. like getting it to six as opposed to like getting swept like that probably actually has a pretty big difference in his mind. He certainly like, could. He's, he's pretty smart, though, about these things. So maybe not. You know, I, I think he's probably smarter uh, about, you know, how far away his team really is than a lot of people. But uh, uh, here's another stat for you, by the way. 
Golden State shot 70% on two pointers. <laughs> and, and there were 13 to 21 from the foul line. It, it, Looney was 0 for 4. It could have been like even worse uh, for Cleveland defense in this one. And it just, I, I mean, I think whatever they're going to do. I think that any adjustments they make in terms of the rotation have got to be shifted towards the defensive side of it. And LeBron, I don't know how much more he can give them. He played the first 44 minutes of this game, and he said afterwards he only got tired. Uh, but Oh, actually, that was a, uh, something I wanted to talk about. So LeBron, it looked like he was going to check out. And then I think George Hill was at the free throw line, and Kerr probably didn't see that and called a timeout in a situation where he often does. So LeBron's kind of like, cool. And so he went to the bench, rested during that timeout, and then never came out of the game. Yeah, let's see if I have any more notes uh, on this one before we get to the San Antonio Spurs. Well, I had one. Uh, it was a, another kind of thing that came up in the post game. So Draymond was so convinced that Clay was not going to play at all that he texted Nick Young on Saturday and said, you better be ready to play big minutes. And Nick Young, apparently his reply was, what? But then Young only played, I think it was six and a half minutes around the same as Looney in the competitive portion of the game. And he was fine. I think that that wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a big deal for him to be out there. He did miss all three of his threes in that point and then was over five overall in the game. But having, again, the value of Clay being in a, a, putting all these guys into slots. And I still think Livingston should play more if they can. Yeah. But if there is this kind of idea that he shouldn't play more than 20 minutes for whatever reason, he's doing a good job in the minutes he's in there. Yeah, I think like Kerr really has not had to go to the best lineups, although he probably, I don't know that he he's intentionally sandbagging it because it's not like they weren't like in a close game in game one. Um, a few other notes here. I think it's at least three times that Cleveland has given up a layup or a dunk to Sean Livingston on that fake wide pin down uh, where he goes to set the fake screen and then just slips right to the rim. And his man is so concerned with switching out and whether it's Clay or Steph coming off of that wide pin down from the corner that they just give up a dunk and then there's no help from the weak side either um i mentioned nance's rough game a, a very key sequence was you know your number one job their scheme is you have to run steph curry off the line and make him take a two-pointer and on consecutive plays as curry finished five of five from three after being four of 12 at one point first he lets himself get crossed up and you know yeah that's difficult it's tough to keep in front of you but if you're in contained mode, that's not good enough on Curry. Like, you got to be okay being driven past. And he wasn't. He, he got his ankles broken, and then Curry hit a three. And then right away, the possession after that, he switched on to Curry again. Curry gives it up, and then Nance just falls asleep, and Curry goes to the corner for a pretty good look from downtown again. And, and it's pretty they brought in nance you know we've talked so many times about how bad that lakers trade was and clark's another 25 million guaranteed for him over the next two years but nance really i think they just really failed in evaluating him frankly like the to if he actually were just the same guy but he actually could switch on to someone like steph curry you know it, it, that trade probably makes sense but because he isn't that guy because kevin love it probably actually does a better job as a switch defender than nance just because he actually executes not that love was great either but at least he forces him to take twos on the initial play so that was pretty ugly from nance um the play where Ty Lu got a technical foul that was just i i couldn't believe they didn't call a foul on curry like we, we could see that yeah, it was a pretty bad back. miss we 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 had the angle on it i mean curry just basically got in lebron's way and the, you know that's a foul you know like you can't just like run into a dude yeah i mean he, when he's he tripped him. he ran underneath his legs he definitely tripped him um cleveland did have an adjustment in the third quarter where they started setting a screen as we noted they really focused on getting the switch they were setting screens for lebron at half court and you really at that point don't 
you can't like hedge out at half court because lebron will just get too much of a head of steam and you can't really force him to go laterally at half court there's just too much space behind and so you have to switch on to him at that point houston likes to do that too a lot with with harden setting a screen if you try and pressure up full court um i thought in the first quarter it, it was interesting you saw love get blown by a couple times by curry early on and you know he looks around he's like hey where's the help behind me you know i did my job i forced him to the rim and then he just gets a layup with nobody helping out and so then the next time down after that he's guarding clay thompson and again that's his job is to run him off the line and he kind of does a little bit more contained because you just he's like all right i can't trust the help behind me i gotta just stop this guy completely and then clay hits a three in his face you know so you see when your teammates don't execute even though you know what your job is just that little trickle of doubt in your mind that oh these guys might not be there behind me can really affect things as a defense that's why that trust is so important yeah, that's a great point. And it's hard to build that on a team that just isn't good defensively. So I mean, that's going to be a limitation. So I, I think the last the last big kind of thing I want to talk with you about with this is I feel like it's not definite, obviously not where, you know, like kind of what the outcome is here. But how do you see these two games in Cleveland faring? Like, I think I think the Warriors, it'll, it'll be more even because Cleveland, I think, will play better and the Warriors maybe take a little bit of a step back. But I would be I think it is not as likely an outcome as I would have anticipated after game one that Cleveland walks away with both of these games. It's certainly possible, but I don't, I don't expect it. Cleveland certainly shot it better. I mean, you think J.R. Smith in particular has had some real struggles on the road in these playoffs. It seems to shoot it better at home. I mean, he's a, a big key to them. But this Cleveland team does not quite have the same explosive potential that they did before with no Kyrie Irving obviously and so I don't think you know you can expect that Cleveland might come out and get like a 10 point lead or something but I don't think they can run and hide I mean remember the only game that they won in last year's finals they put up 88 points in the first half <laughs> or I think it was or 86 maybe it was 80 68 at, at halftime of that game four this Cleveland team is not going to do that you know that they, they might put up 65 but that's not enough to ru- run away and hide from this Warriors team and especially if Iguodala is back too you know Cleveland has been giving up these offensive performances by the Warriors when they've had guys to just hide you know and help off of and if Iguodala is back you know I think not necessarily even as a shooter but just as a guy who can drive who can make decisions is just smarter about screening away from the ball and rolling to the rim and uh gives them another guy who can grab and go in transition as well Cleveland's task is about to get a lot harder defensively and they already haven't been able to get it done so i i think if i had to pick the most likely outcome now i think i i guess i would still stick with five but I, as i said before the series i think a sweep is more likely than it getting to six but we've seen a lot of series totally change when, when they get to the road arena and cleveland has only lost i think one game at home this postseason so they are a, clearly a much better home team all right we'll do a little spurs offseason preview here lots of intrigue with san antonio but first this from blue apron who is now teaming up with best-selling cookbook author Chrissy Teigen to bring you some of her favorite recipes. Six weeks of wildly fun, flavorful cooking. It features dishes like garlic and soy glazed shrimp with charred broccoli and hot green pepper sauce. Hot green pepper sauce, like. And sesame chicken noodles with bok choy. It's just so nice not to have to go to the grocery store. My local grocery store here. It's not even possible to do a quick run there for like one meal. Somehow they always have like three fewer cashiers than you need. And and by the time you're going there and you're back, you spend as much time as it would take to just cook a Blue Apron, which is getting delivered 
right to your door with fresh pre-portioned ingredients and chef-designed step-by-step recipes, including the aforementioned Chrissy Teigen. Now that we don't have games every single night, we can record during the day on some of these, and I'm looking forward to getting back into the kitchen with Blue Apron. The way that you can get started with them, you can get your first three meals free at blueapron.com slash capspace. Easy to remember that slash capspace URL. Spurs probably don't have any, but that doesn't mean that you can't use that blueapron.com slash capspace URL to get your first three meals free. And of course, let them know that you came from us. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Oof. All right, then. The San Antonio Spurs. Mark Sign and I talked about the Kawhi situation on Thursday night's show. To me, the great unanswered question here aside from you know his group and his uncle and you know who's really speaking for him is he speaking for himself or he and greg popovich gonna have this meeting the biggest thing remains uh, that troublesome quad tenant if you haven't read it yet i i recommend the piece from ramona shelburne and mike wright laying out precisely what the issue is believed to be but there seems to be a disconnect between exactly what caused it and exactly what the treatment should be but aside from all that we still don't know if Kawhi has been cleared by this team of doctors. We still don't know if he feels like he's 100%. I mean, it's been now almost two months since they've been eliminated. I guess that's not fair. A month and a half since they've been eliminated. So if we don't know that, like if he's not healthy, whether he wants to trade or not, how are you supposed to trade him? You know, I mean, we really just have no idea at this point. And to me, if he's not healthy as of, you know, the beginning of the summer or the beginning of July, then and you can't prove that to another team, then there's almost no point in trading him because you're not going to get anything. You know, nobody's going to want to trade for him and give up significant assets, you know, unless it's kind of like a Paul George one-year rental kind of deal. But even then, if you're getting for a one-year rental and you don't know if he's going to be healthy in that one year in what some have called a degenerative condition with this quad, you're not going to get anything. So he better be healthy. I mean, maybe there's always a possibility he's just been so annoyed with the Spurs organization that he's just a malingerer at this point. Malingerer? I don't know. Anyway, uh, whatever they used to call Bill Walton when it wasn't true for him. But generally, that has not been the case that when, when athletes say they're hurt, they're usually hurt. So even Kyrie, who supposedly was like threatened to have this knee surgery that he didn't need. Oh, as it turned out, he actually didn't need that knee surgery. So well, and yeah, Ky- Kyrie is an, is an interesting example here of another challenge of Kawhi Leonard negotiations here, which is how he can constrain the potential trade suitors, not only with his health stuff, but also with a willingness or an unwillingness in a lot of cases to commit to anything beyond next season because he has a player option you know he no other team if he gets traded can offer him a designated veteran extension or a designated veteran contract so if he tells whatever team you're thinking about yeah you know either i'm not sure or i won't resign with you it is basically impossible or at least borderline impossible for a team to come up with an offer of assets that is good enough for the San Antonio Spurs to say yes. So he has that control over this process. I think Kyrie wielded that a little bit in, in his time. He had more time under contract as well. So that was that was a difference between those two. But the health is another big factor in this. I mean, you, you think about all these other things that are in play. But then the other one that I want to discuss with you just for a second is if we just take the idea that, let's say for whatever reason, San Antonio decides trading Kawhi Leonard is the right tack, some of it will depend on offers for sure, you know, just who, what, what people have. But one logical way to do a Kawhi Leonard trade is to go to aim more for the future. The problem with that is San Antonio has a bunch of money committed to players who are better now than they will be in a couple of years, like LaMarcus Aldridge. And they have a head coach who is one of, if not the league's best head coach right now. 
And he's, I think he's 69 turning 70 next season. So what they look for, should they decide to trade him, is going to be absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and and maybe this is just, I'm not being realistic, right? There's just so much smoke here that he just wants to be traded, that he wants to go somewhere else. He doesn't want to be a part of this. And we, the summit hasn't happened yet. Who knows what reporting is going to come out after that. But it's so hard to get value if you're San Antonio. And I think... To me, even if he doesn't specifically request a trade, you know, I mean, if if that happens, then all right, maybe you, maybe you do need to trade him. But but if he just says, hey, you know what, I'm not going to commit to the extension. I mean, I, and that's the other thing too. I guess we didn't talk about we talked about this a lot, but like, all right, if he's healthy, then San Antonio makes that offer, and is he really going to turn down that offer? Now, maybe he that offer is also going to be contingent on him saying, hey, I really want to be a spur. It probably would be. But if all you have to do is just give lip service to that and you can get that offer and you just miss the entire year with a potentially degenerative condition, yeah, you know, I probably would say that. And you can always agitate for a trade later if you need to. Uh, you mentioned that the the roster is aging and perhaps that is a larger part of this well, than is really being I, I would I wouldn't say they're aging. I would say they're aging. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as soon as you interrupted me, I was like, oh, I know where he's going this with this. This would be pretty funny. Uh, so, and Jalen Rose, I think, is the one guy who's like, you know, oh, I'm hearing blah, blah. You know, he's not really a reporter. But to say that, yeah, they haven't really put a team around, right? Like, I don't know that he has a realistic path to a championship right now in San Antonio. Well, yeah, I mean, knowing what we know right now, would you rather have Kawhi Leonard's situation in San Antonio if your goal is winning a championship in the next five years? Would you rather be in Kawhi's situation or would you rather be in Anthony Davis's? Oh, Kawhi's, I think, because uh, they won 61 games with basically this team when he was last healthy. And they probably would have been right around there if he'd been healthy all year last year, too. You know, AD's team is a high 40s win team. Um, I think I would pick, I think I'd pick the Spurs too, but it, yeah. I, I also And they also just have aging. a way better coaching and organization. And yeah. I mean, I would say this, I would want to get some kind of a understanding that they're going to get a little more aggressive here you know actually maybe trade a first round pick like it, we're at the point now probably with Kawhi. I mean, it was easy 26 or 27 where getting in someone else who could help would be big you know they, and they just have so many limitations team offensive and, and really even defensively too where and, and to try and play a more modern style again it doesn't sound like he and his team are exactly on the same page to sort of make that cogent of a request necessarily so i don't know we're, we're probably let's let's say this danny let's say he's healthy let's say he requests a trade and he says you know i would you know like Kyrie irving he picks out like you know some pretty good teams right i mean we'll say that if the team that he's going to go to doesn't have a realistic chance of winning 60 games he's probably not interested in going there right so let's come up with something some realistic packages both what uh, just think of like what the offers would be if it's all right pretty decent chance he's going to resign here he'd be interested we don't know for sure but we get at least a year of him and he's as healthy as we can believe that he's going to be right now so the team that has the most assets is the boston celtics i don't know if they're interested if they like their guys better than Kawhi, but let's put them in the conversation early they could do either tatum or brown you know one of those two guys neither no way either those guys to me if the situation is he only has one year left on his contract if he's not if he he doesn't express any willingness to resign like he says even so because i mean there's it's not what he's worth to boston if he's willing to resign what he's worth to san antonio yeah yeah, all they got to do is have the best offer right and well see here's here and gets into so do you think that their first so they have this collection of first round picks so i I would rather have, knowing what we know right now, especially with lottery reform, I would rather have Tatum and Brown 
than the Kings pick, as good as the Kings pick is, yeah. just because and, we and don't know. The 2019 draft is not look great, but people will right. emerge from that, but still. Okay, and then they have, you know, that lightly protected, but maybe maybe too protected Memphis pick, which I think it's eight and then six. Yeah, eight, six, and then unprotected. Unprotected. The Clippers pick is lottery protected. I don't consider that super valuable because, you know, it helps. You know, it could be a sweetener for sure, but it's not the centerpiece. And really, other than that, I mean, I, I don't think Terry Rozier can be the best thing going back, though we could be a part of a trade for Kawhi. The other big problem for the Celtics is matching the salary. I talked about, you know, the we've talked about the idea you created the concept of the human trade exception. They did not do that this year. They could theoretically, if, if both sides were amenable, they could sign and trade Marcus Smart or something like that. But it's also hard to get, I mean, Marcus Morris could be in the trade for sure, but it's kind of hard to get that filler salary because I don't think they'd want to include Hayward or Horford, obviously. Yeah. Also noteworthy, Kawhi does a 15% trade bonus, but it, you know, he's only, and it might actually be easier to get there and depending on who's involved to get there. If you do the trade before, you know, this league year, uh, cause Kawhi makes 18.9 and then he goes up to 20.1 next year, but you have to get Marcus Morris can get you part of the way there. That's not that much yet. You know, yeah, they, they aren't going to have Marcus Smart signed, obviously. That that makes it a little bit difficult. Yabusele surely <laughs> would be involved in this. Rozier probably, you would think, would be involved. But it's not that hard in this day and age to get to a, a legal trade. You know, you could do Morris, Yabusele, Rozier, Ojale, Abdel Nader. And I'm going to have to record that. I was I, I thought they had one more piece, and it, no, it, it doesn't actually add up. What's the number they have to get to to... It's basically got to be 80% of Kawhi's yeah. 18.9 million. Yeah, so uh, 15.1, basically. Yeah, all right. Well, I'm not going to re-record that. But yeah, you're right. It is a little bit harder for them to get there. I think actually next year it would get easier because Rozier goes up to 3 million. And so it might be able to get kind of close. But but anyway, uh, or they could even, you know, they've got Jonathan Gibson that they could throw in there as well as not guaranteed for next year. But I think, though, just if you're looking at, like, what the asset is going to be, bring Kawhi in, it doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense for the Celtics. But in terms of just the asset, I think my offer might be, you know, the Memphis pick and the Clippers pick, something along those lines. And then, you know, and even throwing in Rozier at that point might be too much. Or the Memphis pick and Rozier, like that, even that I think strikes me as almost too much. Which And I'm not even that high on Terry Rozier either. But it's just his value is going to be real low. You know, I mean, it's really like, uh, especially when there's some concerns uh, about his health. Philly is the other one. What about them? Number 10 pick probably involved, maybe 10 and 26 and maybe Dario Saric. You know, that I think that's along the lines of what we're talking about here. And the Sixers have so much more filler salary to make this work, or they could actually just take him in because they have cap space for the coming league year. So I think for them, it is more about the asset. I mean, there are a lot of guys like Sharich, I think, could be a reasonable player to throw in just because he would be marginalized if they got Kawhi. I'm I'm sure there are Philadelphia fans that would love for Robert Covington to be included, but I would love to see Covington stay on that team. I'd be, they yeah. would just be so filthy defensively. Yeah, and they, they are going to have tax concerns at some point soon. And who knows mm-hmm. who the Philly gets in free agency as well. I mean, maybe they bring back J.J. Redick at that point. But... Uh, I'm still, well, at that point, they yeah. could stay over. The, depending on how they structured this time-wise, uh, also if the Spurs were willing to use to take on Jared Bayless's final years, more more as filler, like for a, a greater return, there would be a chance that they could stay over the cap and sign and and use that kind of twenty million buffer, use a significant portion of that to bring Reddick back. Cleveland certainly will be mentioned with that number eight overall pick, but the timing becomes difficult because there's no point in trading for Kawhi unless. 
LeBron James is going to return and it seems unlikely that at least when that pick gets used that they will know what what LeBron's decision will be is there anywhere else that you could think of that Kawhi would want to go I mean there's the Clippers you know 12 and 13 I mean and I'm sorry Spurs fans are and we'll get what about Houston I just don't think they have anything that's good enough. I, well, because the point that I'm starting to get to here too is probably Spurs fans are just throwing up their mouths right now yep. hearing these offers that we're talking about. But to me, these offers, and you know, all right, if he's just like, hey, I'm not going to play again. But but you have to play again if you're Kawhi, right? You already missed a season. You can't just like sit out. And, and so I, I guess the other thing I would say too is, are those offers so good that as San Antonio, you're like, oh my God, we better take these now because they could get even worse. Yeah, maybe they get a little worse. It's not the end of the world. But a year of Kawhi Leonard on your team, if he leaves, you know, number one, you could have him in a training camp. Maybe he looks awesome. You have up until the start of the season to sign in that designated player veteran extension. And maybe you can just work things out. He looks great. You feel comfortable with it. He's back in the fold. He's practicing with his teammates. Everything is kumbaya again. Or you could try to trade him then because he looks good in the preseason. You could try to trade him going up to the trade deadline as well. You could even just hold on to him and if he makes or if he makes all nba then he could be eligible for a designated veteran contract that you can offer him you know 70 million dollars more than everyone else in free agency next year unless there's just some way bigger offer than we think is coming on the trade market i'm gonna just try and keep him at all costs unless he is just like and maybe even if he is like hey i i just i'm never gonna play for the spurs again i don't want to like i would even like consider calling his bluff and saying hey like you got to at least get into training camp and show you're healthy or no one's gonna want you there is one other team that we should mention and it gets into this complicated game theory situation that's the lakers because what makes the lakers different than the celtics and uh, depending on the Sixers, they, the Sixers have some benefits of doing a trade rather than free agency is that the Lakers could believe that they're a good free agent destination for him. But they also have a pretty good collection of young players who make who would make some sense. I think that maybe the Spurs could feel they could get a lot out of, you know, Brandon Ingram could be in that mix. Maybe. But but then the Lakers could say these are guys that would be good around Kawhi Leonard and we're going to have the cap space to sign him out. Right. He's from Riverside, which is in Southern California. So. You kind of get to that point of what's like, well, maybe maybe there is enough of a middle ground just because the other offers are so bad to make it work. But that's a hard negotiation. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Lonzo Ball, Kyle Kuzma, Ingram would be in those discussions and maybe for the Lakers. Because, Josh Hart. Yeah. Yeah, because maybe for the Lakers, because, but I mean, really, uh, from a salary matching standpoint, I mean, I guess Luol Deng could be in there. <laughs> well, they wouldn't have to match salary, depending yeah, oh, on how. Oh, because they would have enough space. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking of it in terms of they're trying to add in, uh, you know, two big free agents and Kawhi. Yeah, that's what if, I'm if thinking. You do that, then because they have now, to make money now money. you get then, and then the idea is you're trading some of these young guys who maybe aren't good enough to help you in a championship anyway that you can just make your your team you get Kawhi Leonard LeBron James and you know fill in some other depth or one other guy or whatever um yeah no that's certainly possible let's say then I mean I think do, do you have anything else you want to say on like the Kawhi like trade possibility or, or, or are we good eh, here not really well yeah but there's a lot of other stuff we should talk right. about with the Spurs though. yeah they got a lot of free agents they do and so like one of the things we often do in this early part of like kind of talking about a team space is lay out the possibilities and with San Antonio it, there's a lot of variance so they are 22 million under the tax if they let all of their restricted free agents go. We'll talk about who those are. It's about 10 million in holds. If both Danny Green and Rudy Gay opt in, if 
basically they wiped the decks. San Antonio could have about 17 million in cap space. Well, and, wait, hold on. Uh, uh, you know, I think you're maybe discounting the possibility that uh, Joffrey Laverne could opt out of his uh, $1.7 million player option for next year. Sure. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's run. Actually, let's start with the player options because the player options are, are a good place to begin this. So Laverne minimum, Danny Green, $10 million, Rudy Gay, 8.8. And those are all like right on the borderline. I mean, Danny Green, that would have seemed ridiculous, you know, a year ago, but he had a rough year. And there just is so little money around in the league. And it seems like the teams that have real cap space are going to be looking in other directions. I mean, like uh, Philly. I'll tell you what, though. If I were him, I would very seriously consider opting out nonetheless. Because one more year under Pop, and and granted, you know, he did have a rough year. But, like, they have no one to guard Kevin Durant, and he still can't get on the floor in the playoffs, right? So I think, like, as long as he's still – and maybe he's just not good anymore. You and I have always been higher on him probably than it seems like even Pop has. So maybe we're – we just have missed the boat, and he just can't be good anymore. Uh, But – he probably has enough of a residual reputation that I think he could at least get like a full mid-level ex- exception contract for like three years, uh, even though it's less than the 10 million he's making. But do you want to risk it, opt into that 10 million, and then you get play another year under pop when like Bryn Forbes is playing over you and now you're not worth anything at age 32 instead of 31? I, I would seriously consider opting out if I were. And that's why agents make their money too. And and also... Because there's so we've... many teams that need a, a 3 and D guy too that would... Uh, I mean, yeah, even, and e- just for the even if he's more of a, of a two than a guy. three, yeah. it's still exceedingly valuable. And Green, not as good as he used to be at defending point guards, but he can do it. And so that gives you more versatility. Like you think you could think of teams like I floated this idea. I was writing my uh, it's not out yet, but I was writing my Pacers offseason preview. And I was like, oh, you know, Danny Green would be really interesting on the Pacers if they could go with an idea. You know, both of those guys can kind of defend both guard positions. Oladipo is running the show offensively. You know, they have they can maybe get get somebody else who can handle the ball a little bit at three. Like, you know, I don't think that's the best solution for Indiana long term. But it's like, you know, even that situation would be would be interesting for him. Well, I, and who knows whether it's just the Spurs voodoo is operating on him. Certainly it was in the summer of 2015 because I've been told that he could have had offers out there that were much bigger than four years, 40 million, although he did get the player option. So maybe he just loves it there. And even though he's kind of getting jacked around on playing time, uh, they were the team that made him into a player. And so he wants to stay there. Who who knows? Uh, what about Gay? What do, you, what do you think for him? I mean, he's, he's another guy who... I'm not sure how big his ambitions are. You know, I think he could have offers that would be pretty decent because, again, there are so many teams that just need scoring that he could provide. And, you know, maybe a little bit of that Spurs dust. He was better defensively this last year. I think, you know, he came back about as well as could possibly be expected from the Achilles. He did have some injury issues during the season. But that one is, is kind of 50 50 year for me, too, that 8.8 million player option gay turns 32 this summer so this would be a good time to just get that last kind of you know mid-level exception full mid-level or close to it contract so maybe he gets like six seven something in that range and then that that your first two three years and that's about good but yeah what he prioritizes i mean with san antonio i think i think it worked out pretty well this year and he played a different role than we all anticipated because Kawhi was on the floor so little but Maybe he just wants to be on a team that can be competitive. But then the question is, if you want to be on a team that's competitive, do you opt it on the Spurs? Because that decision is going to be made before the Kawhi Leonard decision. So maybe you're kind of opting in into a situation that you thought was going to be better than it is. Yeah, he could also just get traded, too, if you opt in. Sure. And if Kawhi leaves, you would imagine that Green and Gay would, would be next. But we just, the Spurs are just, have always been so unaggressive in the trade market that 
you never know i mean you, you would think all right it makes a ton of sense to get what we can for danny green and rudy gay but uh, but it'd be very interesting too i mean if they opt out and they still do have leonard yeah they would have this 15 million in space that have the room exception you know maybe they could go hunting for a little bit of game here uh but there's not anyone you know maybe one of the other two guards uh, that's a little bit younger that could be a nice fit you know a, a kcp and avery bradley type of guy that they could bring in there isn't really anyone and the other thing that they just so desperately need is like a point guard who can get to the basket and they just you know DeJounte Murray just isn't a good enough shooter to fill that role right now they hope that he's going to get there but I think the odds of him being there next year are pretty low what else do you see as the big needs on this team I would like to see probably not a starter but just somebody in the rotation who has brings more athleticism on the front line could just help i mean i was th- i've thought of nerland's noel as an op- option there maybe you can indoctrinate him a little bit in the spurs system make it work deadman i thought did a no nice way job they there. Signed oh i i doubt it i doubt it too but that's kind of the the archetype of, of really what's like you know a guy who hasn't all the way who hasn't necessarily made it work but could be but is talented enough to to make it to fit it in and maybe you're only expecting 20 minutes a game from them and for centers, that means that could be like the room mid level if they have if they have space there. And also, like they need to start thinking about. You brought this up a little bit with the Danny Green thing. Thinking about replacements for the guys that that are on their team right now. You know, I so like one guy I thought about was Will Barton as an eventual like Manu Ginobili replacement, where maybe he's. Maybe he starts, maybe he doesn't, but he just provides a little bit of scoring punch and can can work in some mixed lineups, maybe even closes games for them. And those guys can be pretty hard to find. Another guy I thought of for them, kind of the floor spacing idea would be Nemanja Bielica. It's actually easier to get a four that can space the four than a three that can space the four and defend a little bit just because there are no threes in this class. Yeah, uh, Will Barton is an interesting one. It doesn't quite seem like a a Spurs kind of guy, and you know you, you get the impression that he's looking for a pretty big money contract. That doesn't seem like Spurs necessarily. They only overpay the guys who are already on the team. Um, and, and just so so we're clear on where their space is, you know, they really if they retain Kawhi between Patty Mills, Lamarcus, and then Kawhi's cap hold next summer. And then if he signs a designated player veteran extension, the lopped five million bucks off of this, they only would have about twenty million in space. So you really don't have much to work with as far as remaking their team, even in the summer of twenty nineteen either, assuming that they want to keep the this whole group together. So yeah, if part of your job at this meeting as Greg Popovich is I want to sell you on the fact that we can return to contention, I think Kawhi would be wise to force his way out just because there's other places where I think he'll have a much better chance of winning a championship over the next four or five years. Well, when you're talking about cap space, one thing I will mention is that Powell's only guaranteed for 1920 for 6.7 yeah, million. I'm including so, a projection that they waive him in that. Number. Okay, they they waive him, but they don't stretch him because that could clear another yeah four yeah. million or so. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, it is it is a fair point that it will be hard for San Antonio to really pivot and Patty Mills is on a reasonable contract, but not really a value one. Yeah, I don't I don't see teams going, oh, well, that's yeah. that's exactly what we're looking for because it's another three years and teams are very intimidated right now of time. And Patty Mills is not a, a spring chicken at this point. So it, it's going to be hard for them to pivot, even with, you know, that money tied up in relatively few guys. So it will be a challenge for San Antonio through all that. And we should talk about their their other free agents because we talked about the player option guys. So the most famous is certainly Tony Parker. He has a huge cap hold, 23 million. He said all the right things after 
they lost to the Warriors in terms of like, oh yeah, well, I'd love to come back and be the backup, all that kind of stuff. Who knows if that's actually yeah. he also what talked he's looking about for. potentially going to play somewhere else. Sure. And so there could be options on the table for him. The Spurs already have, you know, depending on how they want to use Mills and Murray together and separately, depending on what happens with Manu. You know, they could they can make that a lot of different things. And then they have three restricted free agents, all of whom are fascinating in terms of potential offer sheets. Kyle Anderson, he's full bird because he was rookie scale contract first round pick. Davis Bertons and Bryn Forbes. And those two guys have holds at 1.7 million and they're both early bird. I don't expect them to get, you know, so that also means they're arenas limited. I don't expect that to really come into play with them. I don't expect somebody to throw $10 million a year at Bertons, but the variability in those offer sheets is, you know, it's, it's a little bit dangerous for this person, especially if it gets into these like multi-year contracts. So I don't expect either of those guys to generate a lot of interest, but as we've said many times before, it only takes one team. Yeah. The, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see I me mean, with the John Simmons situation last year. I think he was a little bit more of an agitator than some of these other guys are, but I, I don't see any of these guys getting an offer sheet necessarily that's lucrative enough. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that the Spurs Pixie does. I think the case of Anderson is interesting what would your, like we said before, with all these restricted free agents, July 1st, before he's solicited an offer sheet, what is like your final offer to Kyle Anderson to get him to just sign a contract? Oof. So I see him ideally as a kind of a low end rotation guy. I know he played more than that on this year's first team. I think of him as like a three or four million a year guy, maybe. Yeah, I was my first if thought that. was my first thought was like three years, 10 million. Yeah, and uh, restricted free agents uh, who were former first-round picks don't sign for that. Did he beat the Correct. starter criteria? I do not know. Oh, yes, he did, my friend. He started 67 games for the San Antonio Spurs last year. Kyle yeah, Anderson. Yeah, just, just under 2,000 minutes. Yeah, so his qualifying offer actually won't be – it will be more than he's been making. Uh, it will be yeah. sizable enough that he'll uh, – you could see him maybe even potentially signing that. Although it does – like the Spurs, these situations don't seem to end in just sign the qualifying offer and we'll have like some measure of acrimony. It, it, it seems like their organizational practices, you know, we're going to either have him on the team and resolve it or, you know, we'll have him move on. Well, and for a little bit of background for people, the that qualifying offer, you know, the the – Fitting the starter criteria, I believe that moves it to the ninth pick, and that is four point three million. I think would be his qualifying offer. Yeah, my prediction is that they're going to overpay him, Cal Anderson, but I would not advise that. I mean, it's just he's another one of these players, and they've invested so much in these players who it's like, all right, can this guy really play against like Golden State? Can this guy really play against Houston? Like, oh, I will note it's actually it's slightly higher. It's four point seven, not four point four. Okay, you know, same same wheel, same general area. Yeah, I definitely like Bielitsa for this team. And as we mentioned, they desperately need someone who can do something off the dribble. They'll need some more size on the wing as well in shooting. That's the entire league that needs that. I'm sure they would love to have a more athletic center option. You mentioned Nerlens, but as we said, it seems unlikely. I'm not really sure who else is out there as an athletic center. You could maybe, I mean, maybe they could be a potential Derek Favors destination. It's assuming that they that green and gay leave but then they really would want to use those resources to try and fill on, on the wing so the, the getting more center seems like a luxury when you've already got gasol and aldridge and you've got 
you know over 40 million dollars combined in this guy so i really they can't really afford to invest big money in the center position and as we know there are plenty of bargains available there as well how would you feel about jeremy grant on the spurs yeah, i don't know he can kind of like jump too high and dunk doesn't really seem like a spurs guy i would like him playing with lamarcus i think that could be interesting yeah uh, uh, jeremy grant would fit on a lot of teams i think i i just don't see him necessarily being in the spurs price range i mean maybe the, they're probably going to be dealing with if both gay and green opt in they probably would still have enough wiggle room to use the full mid-level of two. Yeah, I would say, and I would say that would be my assumption if those guys opt in. Yeah, well, about eight point six million is where that projects to be right now, and and that would leave them about six million in wiggle room under the tax. That's probably enough to get your business done, and they could always try and cut some money as well. Oh, actually, here I'm not even looking at their <laughs> looking at Denver. Well, and something else but that pretty close that anyway. San Antonio could do is they could move either Gay or Green if they opt in. You know, maybe it's just shaving a couple million off if they could get somebody at a that fit in with whatever they were looking for they could do that too all right thanks for cutting me off before i had a chance to fix (laughs) fix my error but yeah it it pretty much would be they they would have room to use the full mid exception even even if green and gay opt-in they would be you know just a little bit over the cap at that um all right we can wrap up on on this now we'll be back tomorrow got another scouting report coming for you guys We've been hard at work on so we got that we'll do a little more off-season preview as well no game to talk about it's uh kind of weird here but lots more content as well you can check out stitcher premium we went back and looked at the 2013 nba finals game six a classic obviously it went looked at the possessions down the stretch and just marveled at how much the game has changed in five years that that classic spurs heat final game talked to about lebron's evolution as well that, that was cool on such a premium and then we also brought out our subscriber mailbag for our patreon subscribers a lot of fun questions on that one as well uh, anything else you need to promote before we depart i will have an off-season preview that comes out on monday i don't know which one it's going to be yet i actually have to decide which one to submit but it'll be on a non-playoff team i haven't decided if <sighs> So that'll that'll be out there. Oh, and yeah, real GM piece that I've been working on for a while, basically on the thought process and execution on how I analyze draft film. And so it kind of went through my approach, how that's changed over the years and what I look for, what I'm trying to avoid. And it's going to combine with the other piece I wrote a couple weeks ago, and then I'm working on one on defense. And I will also, now that there are fewer games, I hopefully will have time. I'm going to do both those real jam pieces for Danny Storytime on Patreon as well. Yeah, that'll be fun and a great companion to some of these scouting reports that we are starting to do. Thanks again for listening, and we will be back tomorrow. Talk to you all then. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... No, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 